Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Element. Let's clear some things up first. It's Element, not L-M-N-T. Yeah, I was going to say that when as people well. say L-M-N-T, where I'm like, who are you? Element. Yeah, Element. I want to talk about one of the use cases for Element. When people are going low carb for out of reason, wanted to play around with ketosis, wanted to just, hey, I'm not traveling. I'm traveling. I don't need to eat very much. I don't need many fuel. Well, that just recently happened to you, right? Yes, that's right. So some of the original or source cases for this were when people were getting keto flu, they were feeling so bad. And when they upped their salts, that keto flu went away. When I travel sometimes, I don't eat a lot of carbohydrate because I'm not really moving. And yeah, we're just sitting there on the plane. So, but one of the things that happens when I go low carb and start to become glycogen depleted is that my understanding is it pulls all the water out because that glycogen is held in the muscle with water, and I start to feel achy. Like literally, my low yeah. back starts to ache. Yeah, like you literally are like, wait, my low back is aching, and it never aches. And it always takes you a second to realize that you're like, wait, I haven't had a carbohydrate yet today. And guess what happens when I drink Element? You're fixed. Cured. <laughs> so weird because that I'm changing again. Element is really about moving water through different compartments of your body. That's the magic of this thing, plus good taste. And uh, when I add that water back with Element, keto ache, gone. If you want to get rid of your keto flu, it's time to try Element. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Vitruvian. You and I were just having a conversation with someone writing an article about the need for adults to strength train. Yeah, and especially adults who are doing, you know, like outdoor sports and triathlons and mountain biking. And Oftentimes, I don't remember we were traveling, but we witnessed some people doing strength training. I think we were at, in Texas. And what we saw was a lot of gym effery where people are doing like some tricep pushdowns, a little curls, a little, and that's not weight training. Yeah. We also felt bad for people because it was obvious they had no idea. They knew they, they had learned that they were supposed to strength train, but they had no idea where to begin or what to do. So when people approach us and they're like, hey, I want to get into some strength training, some rural resistance training. One of the things that we simply run into is, well, okay, well, we're going to have to challenge your sandbag or your kettlebells with more volume or some cardio. But it's difficult to get people on real linear progressions. You're going to need a barbell or a trap bar plus a whole bunch of weights to get in there. And then suddenly people get overwhelmed. What's beautiful about the Vitruvian is that no one is freaked out by handles. So I'm, I can be like, here. Right, it's very relatable and accessible. Right. Hold these handles that are going to crush you or hold this bar. But you can progress from five pounds all the way up to many hundreds of pounds where I can't hold the grips anymore. It's so, such a large load. That's what's amazing about the Vitruvian. One of the best ways we know to put strength on people is basic linear progressions. Having people add just a little few pounds per exercise, per time they do that exercise. And guess what happens? It is so easy to do that on Vitruvian or suddenly you can walk into your garage load this thing up in a basic linear progression and have real strength training. Front squat, back squat, deadlift, press, you name it. Yeah, and a lot of people can't relate to kitting out an entire home gym with no. all the required equipment and you could literally get all your strength training needs met in your home with just this. I'm pretty sure I can link. get you the Olympics on a Vitruvian. <laughs> to learn more, go to thereadystate.com slash Vitruvian. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we're thrilled to bring you Brad Stuhlberg. Brad is the best-selling author of the new book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. 
Brad writes and coaches on mental health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. He regularly contributes to the New York Times, and his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic, among other outlets. In his coaching practice, he works with executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, athletes on their mental skills and overall well-being. He is on faculty at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and his past books include The Practice of Groundedness and Peak Performance. He lives in Western North Carolina. So this was an awesome episode, and I learned so much, and I thought it was such a great conversation, but I thought one of the things I liked the most was how timely this was for you and I, having just gone through a huge change, and and one we're still going through, in dropping off our own daughter at college. And I thought it was just such an important conversation and thinking about how we can manage these inevitable, difficult times of change in our lives. I've known Brad for a long time. We've known, I mean, over 10 years. He is such a thoughtful writer and person. And his evolution, sort of from elite athlete towards sort of how do I help people navigate their lives is really personally astounding. One of the things that I think was interesting was realizing that when he got into trying to understand his own process, this is a really personal book for him, he also recognized that there wasn't a lot of literature or language around giving people a framework to navigate change in their own lives. Yeah, I mean, this is a really special book and our conversation with Brad was really in-depth and amazing. One of our favorites. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Brad, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We are really excited to talk to you about your new book and your old books and all things books. But before we do, you just had a big athletic achievement that we were talking about in the pre-roll. So I wanted to wanted to have you share it here on on the podcast to start. Well, it's all it's all relative and I feel like uh, in a room of giants, literally and in Kelly's case figuratively, it's hardly an accomplishment, but I did lock out 500 pounds on the deadlift for the first time recently. So that was a that was a big lift for me. Dude, that's so awesome. That's a big lift for anyone anytime. Yeah. We have the saying that like if you're an adult man, we can train you up to deadlift 400 pounds. Like just that's reasonable, but 500 pounds, that's not for everyone. That, that requires training, that requires some diligence, programming. But I think what's especially remarkable about that is you come from a slightly different school of athletic endeavors that was sort of more aerobically biased. Is that, yeah, let's is that hear, correct? Let's hear a little bit about that. It's the most recent school. That was like my graduate school of sport. But you could use the metaphor that my upbringing in sport was very much in power sports. So long before I knew you, Kelly, I played slot receiver to outside linebacker for a pretty good Michigan high school football team. And then I had this departure shortly after college where I got the endurance sports bug. And that's when I met you, Kelly. So you saw me as this long, lanky, long course triathlete. And um, I fought against my body for nine years trying to improve and do that. And eventually, I just kind of got sick of it. I had some chronic injuries that weren't going away. We had the birth of our first child and it was just, it wasn't fun. But being an athlete has always been central to my identity. So I went back to my roots in strength and power sports. And it's what I've been doing for the last four or five years. I definitely respond better to the strength training. You know, what I tell my running friends is it's like I could train my ass off and probably never run faster than a 255 marathon. But after one year in the gym, I was like back into 245 shape. So some of it is just my genetics is, is better for strength training. But yeah, now I'm doing that. 
As Kelly says, when we go on mountain bike rides with a lot of people that have whippet style bodies, he's like, I am a square peg trying to put myself in a round hole. And it sounds like that's what you were doing with your endurance career. But, but interestingly, <laughs> I feel like, you know, when I raced slalom, I was like 185, which was the biggest slalom athlete out there. It was based on my he, frame, uh, yeah. my anthropometry. But you were still so little for you. I know. I was, I'm now 238. And one of the things that happened was I started to get into CrossFit and strength training legitimately because it was fun and it supported all these other things and really felt like made me pretty resilient. But I did not get strong the way my friends got strong. And I felt like I've been fighting my genetics this other direction. And really, I'm an aerobic athlete. And I, people laugh at that, but I'm like, no, 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 I'm an aerobic athlete. Now I'm just trapped, encased in this meat sleeve, but I'm the slowest aerobic athlete, but I can go. So it's interesting that uh, you end up coming around and you, you really is, there is something to the genetics. Also, I think it just gives you particularly such interesting insight into behavior, into training, the the conversations you're able to have, the nuances, because you live on both sides. I think it's just really remarkable. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's nice to have lived in in both worlds. I will say you, you said something that piqued my interest a little bit, or, or at least something that I related to is I have lots of friends who have gone down the endurance sports mm. path and then had a baby. And oftentimes, <laughs> while endurance sports are amazing, they are often very time-consuming. And, and expensive, you've just, on, your expensive on your body. And you have to spend a lot of time away from the house. So, I mean, do you think having a child was sort of this moment where you're like, okay, I don't have time for this. And I do have time to deadlift. A hundred percent. I think on top of other frustrations, that was like the, the hay that broke the camel's back. But yeah, it, I was at a point where to get better at endurance sports, I'd be training 12 to 15 hours a week. I'd always be injured or on the verge of injury because I'm fighting against my body. I would be whip tired because endurance sports are very catabolic in nature. And I said, you know, I, I don't think it would take more than four by 75 minutes in the gym to probably train to the point where that's the, the max dose I could recover from not being a pro athlete. And man, would I have a lot more time and energy. So that was a big part of the the shift was just kind of updating to what was life going to be like a, with a kid and what kind of father did I want to be and what kind of energy did I want to have for the family. And let me just say, what kind of body do I want to roll into my 50s, 60s, 70s with? You know, we Ideally one that works. Yeah. And <laughs> we see that a lot of our endurance friends got really good at it. Again, no shade. I think it's awesome. Yeah. We're mountain bikers, but they lost springiness. They lost muscle mass. They lost bone density. And it's harder to change that station the older you get. I think it's that's one of the things that you should absolutely specialize in something for a while because it's a passion. It's a hobby, whatever. Go, go after it. Then you have to start to say, is this the same frame that's going to allow me to maintain my range, be pain-free, respect my the time. I mean, you and I, we've talked a lot about just the fact that we got into, there's a time in our lives where what we could do was 25 minutes in the garage. And that yeah. was all we had. Yeah. So we had to make it efficient and we weren't going to go to the Olympics with that, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're not going to really do any endurance sports with that, at least not in a meaningful no. way for, for a long period of time. So it's just a shift and they're both great. And I do agree with you. I think that, um, as you get older, the importance of muscle mass and just doing everything you can to avoid frailty becomes so important. So that's just a side benefit. Before we just kind of dive in and you tell us a little bit about where you are and, and how you come to be where you are, I just want to point out 
if you go particularly onto X Twitter, Brad has become the most reasonable voice for on the internet. Like it's crazy how reasonable you have you've become. And if you're not already following Brad Stolberg, definitely start following Brad. But I want you to start to view this as you've come from this lens of elite performance. Your writing partner is one of the best coaches on the planet. You really have this sort of nuanced, really in-depth, you know, sort of position and view on training. And yet I just, you have swung into becoming the world's most sort of affable, reasonable person. And I can't wait to hear how you got on this journey. Thank you. That's like the nicest thing that uh, you could say. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Well, tell us where you're coming from today, because I think there's a relatively Wait, can new... I ask yeah, go ahead. Side, can ahead. I ask one more side question? I heard that you grew up in Michigan. You do some work with the University of Michigan School of Public Health. I can't help but mention we just dropped our daughter off at University of Michigan for her freshman year. Did you know that? Man, Kelly, you don't respond to my deadlifts. Kelly and I have been texting about your daughter going to Michigan for the last six months. Oh, He just my hasn't God. told you. Okay, see? Sorry, Kelly's giving me a look. I'm getting him in trouble. Yeah, so you guys have had like a whole convo about this. Go I've been in the dark. Did you go to Zingerman's Deli when you dropped her off? We did. We went to Zingerman's. We went and spent all our money at the M-Den. And we've realized, unlike other schools, that it it's, has a cult-like quality. And nobody is embarrassed to be wearing their Michigan gear 24 hours a Michigan day. Dad. Michigan dad. I mean, there dad. were a lot of parents with kids where it was Michigan mom, Michigan dad, and the kid was wearing a Michigan shirt. And it's like, if you went to any other school, it's like, no way, you would never do that there. It's like, welcomed. You know what they say about Harvard, right? It's the Michigan of the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> TM. That anyway, is fantastic. All right, so you guys have already been going long on the Michigan thing, but I was like, Michigan? Oh my God, I have to ask him. Okay. You just released this awesome book. Tell us the backstory. Why this book? Why now? What inspired it? Part personal, part, I'd say professional or societal. On the personal front, in the last, let's see, six years of my life, just a lot of change that felt like it happened pretty fast. It was very compressed. So a couple examples, got really sick with obsessive compulsive disorder and secondary depression, seemingly out of nowhere, and then recovered from that. That was a two to three year journey. Had my first child with my wife. We had our second child, moved across the country from the Bay Area to a smaller mountain town in Western North Carolina, published my first book solo severed really all ties with the corporate world to just go at it full-time as a, as a writer trying to do this. Stopped running and had major orthopedic surgery on my leg. Kelly was a big help in that process. Thought that maybe it could help me get back into running, but nope, it did allow me to do other things I wanted to do, which was great. So all of this... Oh, and then a very painful family estrangement. So all of this happened in six years, like from the maybe seven, from the time OCD started to now. So just all of this personal change in my work, in my life, in my athletic identity, in my family, in my geography. And then early on in the pandemic, I remember being in our kitchen on my wife's iPad and reading all of these articles with the headline, when are things going to get back to normal? And it didn't matter, right, left, or center, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or The Economist, they were all running these kinds of articles. And there was something about it that just like viscerally bothered me. And I didn't know what it was at the time. But something about that framing of when are things going to get back to normal? So I went to Google and I just typed in, why do we think about change in terms of getting back to normal? 
And the word homeostasis came up. I'm like, oh, I've heard of homeostasis. Who hasn't? So I start looking into homeostasis. It leads me down this rabbit hole to allostasis, which is a topic maybe we'll talk about. And here's the book. So I wrote the book for myself because I wanted to make sense of all the change that I was undergoing. And then it turned into a project for other people too, because as I did the research, I learned that so much of our conventional wisdom on change is really due to a faulty or at best an incomplete model. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting what you say. I mean, just the idea that we all are focused on getting back to normal. I mean, what does that even mean? And presumably, if we're all trying to change and evolve as humans, we wouldn't necessarily want to go backward. I don't know. Could you talk a little bit more about like where this back to normal thing came from and and how it's... Define homeostasis and allostasis for the people who are listening who maybe if they've heard of homeostasis, maybe don't have really good definition and maybe have never heard of the, the second term. All right. So homeostasis comes out of the mid-1800s, and it was an observation that a physician and physiologist named Walter Cannon had. He basically said that living systems crave stability, and change is bad for living systems. And this is 1850s science. This was groundbreaking back then. He hadn't ever read Anti-Fragile yet, had he? <laughs> he had not yet read Anti-Fragile. And Cannon described a cycle of order, disorder, back to order. And he said that the goal of any vibrant system is to avoid change, to avoid disorder, and when disorder happens, to get back to order as fast as possible. And that is homeostasis in a nutshell. It's a self-regulating process that brings a system back to where it started. Yeah, and with like things like your body temperature, pretty cool. I'm super down with homeostasis when it comes to my enzymatic processes. (laughs) That's right. However... Outside of very few examples, one of which is body temperature, it turns out that vibrant, healthy systems, that's not how they achieve stability through change. They don't get back to order. So along comes Peter Sterling, neuroscientist at University of Pennsylvania, and his collaborator, Joseph Ayer, a biologist. And they say, we've been thinking about how healthy systems thrive completely wrong. So yes, it is true that healthy systems crave stability but that stability is constantly being recreated somewhere new. And they coined this term allostasis, which they describe as a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And the root, the etymology of the words tells the whole story. So homo means same and stasis means standing. So homeostasis means stability by staying the same. Allo means variable. So allostasis means stability through change. And what Sterling and Ayer did, which really rocked the scientific world, was say that healthy systems are adaptable. And while it's true that they crave stability, that stability comes as a byproduct of being able to change. While this has become more and more well-known in science, there was a paper in the prestigious journal Nature about 12 years ago. It's still not really known to lay people. Like the conventional model we have for change is homeostasis, and it turns out not to be so accurate. And on the, the fever point, That's a great example, but a fever is only one part of an immune response, and the rest of the immune response looks a lot more like reorder, right? Because that's the process of immunity, is like your immune system reaches a new stability after this chaotic period, and that new stability is now primed to fight whatever it was that threw you off. My monkey brain is going wild right now. (laughs) Where am I going to jump in? I start with by saying just, I think intuitively, there have got to be some some sayings like smooth seas don't make good sailors. You know, I think intuitively people understand that, but I have to say, where do people get formal 
learning or a schema to handle change. They just sort of blunder through it. What's wonderful about your book is that you're like, here are some really simple models to help you understand and sort of conceptualize what's going on and not just and try to get back to normal. But in your research for this book, did you recognize that there is literally no formal place where people talk about ways to cope with change? That's right. And I was shocked because change is more or less synonymous with life. We're always changing. We're changing internally. The environment around us is changing. Evolution, how we got here, is just one big process of order, disorder, reorder. When you step back and think about it, yet there is no place to get a formal education in change. You could argue if you're, I don't know if it's unlucky or lucky, but if you've, if you've had reason to go work with a really good therapist, maybe you've learned some skills. But besides that, it doesn't really exist, which is wild to me. It was wild to me. And then you have the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and everyone in between saying, get back to normal. I mean, that's what we get as a result. It's just like a maladaptive, literally a maladaptive outlook towards change. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like change is the one thing we can all count on happening to us in our, you know, throughout our lives. I mean, it is interesting that there are zero tools. Talk to us a little bit about the idea that I loved in the book called rugged flexibility. Could you define that and sort of tell us a little more about that and how you came up with that? Rugged flexibility is this term that I coined in the book, and I argue that it is like the best way to skillfully navigate change. And to be rugged is to be tough to be durable, and to be flexible is to be soft, to bend easily without breaking. And most people hear these two words and they think that they are diametric opposites. You're either rugged or you're flexible. And what I argue in the book is that the way to skillfully navigate change is to become both rugged and flexible, to marry these two qualities, to become a supple leopard. Yes. yes. Sorry, I yes. had to throw that in there. Take it. Point, point <laughs> yes. to Brad. Point to Brad. Free pub. Free pub. <laughs> Yeah, so that's rugged flexibility, and, and it's born out of this notion of non-dual thinking, which is this and that, not this or that. And it's so easy to think like, yeah, I'm going to be super rugged or I'm going to be flexible, and it's both. And this traces right down to like very basic logic, which again, like common sense is all too uncommon. Generally speaking, in 99.999% of circumstances, we do have some agency to navigate change. And in 99.99999% of circumstances, there is much that is also out of our control. Both things can be true at once. Are there certain kinds of people with certain backgrounds or skills or yeah. families that are sort of naturally better at this idea of rugged flexibility? Or is, is it people who have, you know, as you said, worked with a really good therapist or been conscious, you know, intentionally have intentionally taken the time to think or work on this area of their life who are good at it? I mean, who is this and who's becoming ruggedly flexible? Ooh, that's such a good question. I don't think there's like a temperament of rugged flexibility that you're necessarily just born with. I think that it is generally hard won through experience. However, what I'm hoping to do with this book is, is help people fast track that a little bit because it's also just not a way that people in Western cultures think. Like we don't think of marrying two opposite qualities. We think very dualistically and very linearly, which is not a bad thing. Like the scientific method rests on like disproving a hypothesis. Like it is very either or. And that is a 
phenomenal way of amassing knowledge and thinking, but it's not the only way. And so much about life is complex and gray. And change is so complex and gray that I think that we need to bring this kind of non-dual thinking to it. So it's a, it's a roundabout answer to say that how will I try to instill this quality in my kids is I will teach them that for some situations, this or that thinking makes a lot of sense. But for other situations, this and that thinking makes a lot of sense. Like everyone else, one of our personal traumas during the COVID epidemic was we lost the gym, which you had seen. You've been there. All of the attendant problems that went along with that, letting our friends and family and, the, and our employees go at the gym, shutting that down, losing my this sense of identity and self. I think we're a little stressed out. I can't remember. I had also had my knee replaced. So I had just gone through this horrific sense of like self-loss. Maybe I won't be able to move again. Well, you know, my personal identity tied in with movement, which I know you can relate to. And this thing happened where I burned a hole in my stomach and started hiccuping. And I started hiccuping and getting six hiccups a minute for 13, 14 days. 13 days, 14 days. And I was debilitated. And Juliet slept in another room because I would hiccup and the whole bed would shake and she couldn't sleep. He is large. So when he hiccups, <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a thing. It was a thing. And what's really interesting was that I couldn't I couldn't get ahead of that. Like I tried Thorazine. I mean, they put me on gnarly drugs. Ultimately, I was on this freakish, like horse trank dose of gabapentin waiting for this ulcer to kind of heal and waiting for my nervous system to come down. But one of the things that happened was that Juliet, you know, because I literally was in this place where people are like, oh yeah, our friends were sending me a, the, the you know, hey, this gimmick, try this, drink upside down. I was like, you don't understand this, this, I'm well beyond that. And simultaneously, I was reading about people who had unremitting hiccups going on for years and years and years. And suddenly Juliet and I were like, well, how are we going to make content? How are we, am I ever going to speak again? So Juliet went out and she hired a hypnotist. Which, by the way, just the process of hiring a hypnotist was funny and weird, and I will never forget it. But the reason I, I bring it up was that as I was confronting these things of, I can't control this, this may not change, this could get worse, kind of those three fundamental beliefs that we have. One of the things that happened during this, this session was he said, you know, how do you control a wild bull, Kelly? And I was like, I have no idea, you know, like, told me what to do. And he was like, you put it in a big field. And when I suddenly opened my expanses and was like, I'm going to be okay. I'll solve this. I have the resources. That little mind shift took away all of the anxiety that I was building around this thing that I, you know, this really debilitating thing. I, if, if, dude, have you ever had hiccups for an hour? Imagine 14 days of that. You know, I lost a ton of weight. It was, it was really gnarly. So this book really resonates with aspects of it. I mean, of course, I love your writing, but because I, I realized that Juliet and I are very good at handling change and difficult times. We're sort of masters of those things through our childhood, through sports training. I have the greatest partner on the planet. But what I realized is I actually did not have a formal schema to understand step one, step two, step three. We had just sort of intuited our way through these very difficult times, talking, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, man, I wish you could go back in time and just put this out before I have the hiccups. That'd be great. You know, but I was going through my own version of the hiccups, right? Like, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder is a psychological hiccup that just won't go away. 
So I think that like some of it is you kind of have to have the hiccups uh, and have that that personal experience to then maybe be able to intellectualize some of this stuff. But I appreciate you saying that. I think I view my number one job as an author is to give people language and words for things that they intuit and that maybe they already even know, but they don't yet have concrete words for. Because once we have words for something, we can name it. And once we name something, we can wrestle with it. We can share it with others. We can lean on social support in a different way. And when we name things, they lose their power over us, even if only a little bit. Did your hiccups ultimately go away after working with the hypnotist? Because you're not hiccuping now. So what? I'm just curious, what was the, the end result of that? I think uh, Prilosec kicked in after 21 days, <laughs> after 14 days. Yeah. And, I, and the system, the thing that was constantly irritating, finally calmed down. And then the nervous system finally stopped interpreting that as a, as a threat. Yeah, it was crazy. It was but, crazy. But I would have these spontaneous kickups every once in a while. And I still am now sort of burnt. Like I'm, I injured myself during that, that time. And there's something that I really like to do, everyone. I like to eat toast. So I don't know. Just, no, he doesn't just like to eat toast. He likes to eat bone dry toast. So good. And then I, I just really, I, there's something about baking bread and then baking it a second time. Can I tell a funny anecdote for listeners and then we'll get back on track about Kelly's eating? You probably have never heard this story, Juliet. So the first time I met Kelly was at the gym in the marina. And this is like when I was into my peak endurance athlete days. And there was like a little bit of, you know, endurance athletes versus CrossFit. This was back in the, the immature days. And I go to meet this guy and the pretense is I'm writing for Outside Magazine. We ended up doing a great, a great story on, on the gym and on Kelly. And Kelly, I don't know if you remember this, but you walk me to Starbucks and I order like an Americano with sugar-free almond milk. And Kelly gets the freaking venti latte and then asks for it with not milk, but cream. And that, I just remember thinking like, oh my God, you were still training pretty hard there. And I am like, woo. So um, it's funny to hear about the dry toast. I thought you were going to say it's like toast dipped in cream is where you were going with that. I don't even know where he was going with that. Okay, wait, can I, I got a question. I got a non-toast well, My question. point okay. is, Hit uh, your point. every once in a while we're driving to the gym or driving to work now and I'll have a piece of dry toast, the piece I'm having because it's, it's like sacred, beautiful toast, but I have no water in the car and it triggers hiccups. And it becomes an emergency for me to get to work where I can drink some water because my hiccups are starting to persist. And Juliet starts to get very stressed. She's like, you can't eat dry toast in the car because it's going to trigger your hiccups again. And I'm like, it's interesting that those patterns, my body now knows through, you know, the body keeps a score about what this is and it reacts quickly. Yeah. And you're someone that knows just about as much as anyone I'd imagine, at least on this side of the equator, about pain. You know, you don't need me to tell you that, like, generally speaking, the more that you resist pain and the more that you freak out about pain, the thornier it becomes. And I think that there's probably an analogy there, or at least some crossover. And it is so tricky, whether it's the hiccups, whether it's physical pain, whether it's the pain of loss, stress, any kind of. Yeah, remove pain is adding discomfort. Right, discomfort, whatever it is. And back to non-dual thinking, like rugged and flexible, there is this tension between acceptance on the one hand and just doing nothing and just completely letting go and then problem solving on the other. And I think like a mature adult's life's work is figuring out where on that spectrum they should fall for different situations. 
And that is so, talk about like a framework that is easy to talk about and the words are powerful, but hard to do. But I'm constantly asking myself when faced with challenges, where do I want to be on acceptance versus trying to fix? And it's tricky and it's a moving target. I mean, with my psychological hiccups, like there was a lot of trying to fix, right? There's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's taking medication, but at some point there's also just this surrender and being like, I might never get better. This might never go away. And of course, that's the day it goes away. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by our friends at Momentus. One of the things that you and I are obsessed with these days is deep sleep. Anything related to sleep we're obsessed with. Particularly All deep things sleep. sleep. No. Yeah. One of the easiest ways that we know to change your deep sleep has been to supplement with magnesium. It's like a trank dart for deep sleep. <laughs> you're, you're crazy, man. What's so easy, though, is that people have been using magnesium for downregulation sleep for a long time. What we're getting now are better, more bioavailable sources of magnesium. Magnesium that crosses the blood-brain barrier, magnesium that affects sort of mood a little differently. The new magnesium 3 and 8 on Momentus is like the super turbocharged magnesium. It's crazy. It's so awesome. And you know, one of the ways I know that it is a great product for us is that when we travel, we really like strip out the, you know, big cocktail of supplements that we usually take. And we just take a couple of things and we always make sure that we have some magnesium on hand when we travel because it's so important to our sleep. It actually is a little funny routine around our bed. I'm like, hey, did you take your magnesium? You're like, well, I'm laying down and I haven't sat up and I don't want to burn a hole in my... You're all precious about your magnesium. People, take your magnesium. If you struggle with deep sleep or if you want to improve the quality of sleep... Or sleep at all. Yeah, I would say there are lots of solutions. Momentus makes a great sleep pack, but start with just the simple addition of magnesium in the evening. And what I think is... It's magnesium. It's a mineral. It's not a crazy topic. It's not It's not a weird thing. You're not drinking like goat blood. It is a simple way to improve your deep sleep. Very, very simply. Get on the magnesium, people. Go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is also supported by our friends at Yeti. They have created the last bottle. It's the Yonder bottle. It's this awesome- It's the what bottle? Yonder. Yonder. Yonder bottle. It is this awesome plastic bottle that is made of 50% recycled plastic. And of course, 100% BPA free. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to, this This thing is bomb proof. can freeze it. It's light. You can actually travel with it and not be like, I'm taking my, my bottle or lid, my, my child. The lid is also bomb proof. It's totally leak proof. So you can put it in your backpack right yeah, next to your deal. laptop and not have to worry about an explosion. There's something cool about this, actually. You have two choices. You can big mouth it and fill ice cubes in there. But also you can just have the little like discreet uh, petite cap for uh, for the more like refined The people. more fancy yeah, kind yeah. of drinking. Like if you're drinking whiskey out of like you need a liter of whiskey and you just want to sip it, you could do that. Or if you need to mainline the whiskey, you could do that way too. Look, we are huge fans of this Yonder bottle. It's what we, we use. We beg when, them to make this yeah, for a long time. Yeah, we use it when we travel, when we backpack, when we do outdoor activities. It is a huge part of our everyday life, and it's really a great addition to the Yeti family. When are we going to tell Caroline that we changed her middle name to Yonder? To learn more and get one of the greatest water bottles out there, go to thereadystate.com slash Yeti. You know, I had a similar experience actually last fall. I, I talked about this recently, but for the first time in my life, I had low back pain. 
I've had a lot of weird health stuff, but I actually haven't had a lot of weird like orthopedic pain. So I spent the first four weeks like in high action, like doing everything, trying to like see Kelly as a patient. And I mean, I was in like high action, like let's see how we can fix, 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 fix. And then four weeks in, Kelly goes, you know, most low back pain just resolves on its own in four to six weeks or some, what was it? Six to eight weeks? Four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. And I go, oh, okay, well, I'm at four weeks and I literally just stopped doing anything. I stopped like mobilizing and seeing practitioners and I stopped thinking about it. And guess what? Exactly at six weeks, it went away. And so I had a real important lesson in exactly what you're talking about, right? I love that. So, you know, the one way, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. The one way that Kelly and I have often talked about flexibility and the importance of it. And, and in fact, we've been talking about this for years, years. Um, as something that we really value in part because we have a bunch of parents now, many of whom are in their late 70s, early 80s. And we live like a mile from my own mom, Janet. And one of the things that's really amazing about Janet and stands out so distinctly now that she's almost 80 and my other parents are also almost 80 is that Janet is still super flexible as a person. She's intellectually flexible. She's flexible, you know, she'll- Emotionally. She's emotionally flexible. She stands out among the other parents like a sore thumb because it seems like as we age, we become- less and less flexible and less and less able to manage change. And so we've had this sort of like front row seat to watching this in our own parents. And we've been talking about it for like 10 years. Like, how do we make sure that when we're older, we maintain that level of flexibility, that ability to adapt to change? Like one example is like, we when our kids have kids, we want to support our kids and we don't want to be inflexible. Like if our kids live in a crap apartment, like we want to be able to go sleep on their crappy couch because that's the option we have. And that's how we can help take care of our kids' kids kind of thing, you know? So we just have been, we've been talking a lot about how do we retain this intellectual, emotional, physical flexibility as we age and not become like your sort of classic, inflexible, unwilling to change older person. So what's the secret? Ooh, <laughs> I wish I had it. I'd be a wealthy man. I think though, there, there are a few ways to approach this. One is just like the very organic way, which would be, I know y'all are already doing this, which is just like keep exercising and keep moving. The research is pretty unequivocal now that one of the best ways to stave off cognitive decline and cognitive rigidity is not through doing word searches, but through moving your body. So I think like you want to nail the organic part of it, which is really movement. Sleep is important too, but nothing trumps movement. The more psychological side of this I think is realizing that sometimes flexibility is uncomfortable and being okay with that and being very values driven in how you act. So if I step back and I talk about the schema of rugged flexibility, the ruggedness are your core values. So things like health, community, creativity, authenticity, intellect, wisdom, kindness, whatever they might be. And those are things that you're going to carry with you throughout all kinds of weather patterns in your life. Those probably don't change, or if they do change, they don't change very often. But then how you apply those core values has got to be super flexible. And that's where the flexibility comes in. So I think it's just a constant question of being like, what are my values? And what would a creative person do? What would an authentic person do? What would a kind person do in this moment? And then even if it feels icky and uncomfortable because I'm getting older and more rigid, how do I just go ahead and do the thing anyways? Our mutual friend, Rich Roll, talks about mood follows action. 
In the research literature, it's called behavioral activation, which basically says often we act ourselves into a way of being. We don't be ourselves into a way of acting. So I think the best way to be flexible is to continue to act like a flexible person. So we've got the organic exercise and sleep. We've got this mood follows action, know your core values and act on them. And then I think the um, the last thing that I'll say is working to diversify your sense of identity and your sense of self. So the metaphor that I've come to use is I think it's really helpful to think of your identity like a home. And you want to have multiple rooms in your house. Because if there's a deluge or you know a flood in one room, then you can go seek refuge in those other rooms. And it allows you to have some stability while you navigate the flood. Whereas you just live in a studio apartment, you only got one room. Well, when that room floods, you're screwed. Like everything's going to blow up. And I think that when we become really rigid, like we identify as one type of person that only does one thing, then it makes us really fragile to change. Because when anything changes in that one room, we freak out. And you see this in aging, but the other place you see it is with elite athletes in transitions. If your only room as world-class speed skater, world-class power lifter, you name it, well, then when change happens, be it illness, injury, aging, retirement, it's really discombobulating. So I think like the most important thing for an athlete, and I'm, I'm going to come back to the question of aging, but really for anyone, is to just to have multiple rooms in the, in the house that is your identity. I love that. We're running that's, into... That's a great answer. Not always to put it through the, the framework of sport, but I think it's such a common way for people to kind of understand themselves because it's the easiest bar of entry, right, is to get uncomfortable or to compete or something. One of the things we're noticing is that there is a definitive lack of resiliency when faced with adversity and change. I, I'm talking about, I'm seeing, we're seeing kids in high school and in going to college struggle with winning, not winning. They've been the best forever. Suddenly they're not the best. You know, we have our friends' children not getting to med school. They've crushed everything in their lives. And suddenly, you know, the system isn't working for them. I know you kind of answered this obliquely, but it seems like, do we have to be hyper meta about process all the time? Or can we be experiential and where we can dose out some of these dissonant moments where you... Do we have to all do like a escape room where Juliet's the boss and I'm fighting the boss and we have to talk? Is that the only way through? Do you think there are breadcrumbs of behaviors that can set us up for having this conversation? Because I'm not sure my 15-year-old is ready to have this conversation with me yet. Ooh, parenting. Yeah, this is tough. I think there are breadcrumbs. I think the first thing is just love your kid regardless and work really hard not to tie that love to any kind of behavior which sounds easy, but is so hard to do when the rubber meets the road. I mean, I write books on this stuff and my five-year-old got really into basketball and it took so much effort not to show up like more excited when he was playing basketball than when he was playing Pokemon. Because I didn't want him to think, oh, dad likes when I'm playing basketball and making shots. So therefore, like I need to play basketball and make shots. And I'm only sharing this because it, it required like tons of restraint but no, I'm just going to love you the same. Even though inside, I'm like, yeah, like future MJ. And he's five. And I write about this. So if I think and write about this all the time, imagine how hard it is for someone that doesn't think and write about it all the time. So I think that's one breadcrumb. I think another breadcrumb is, and I know that you all have talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Kelly, I think you've written about this a little. 
But I think that we've back to like this non-dual thinking. I think we've kind of lost the plot societally. So if 10 years ago, it was just tough it out. Mental illness doesn't exist. You know, think positive thoughts. You'll be fine. The pendulum swung so hard in the other direction, which is really good for destigmatizing things. And I think has been a huge net positive. But destigmatizing something isn't the same as making it better. And I think that like we need to destigmatize and teach our kids that it's okay to be frustrated and feel all these things and fail. And that doesn't mean that the solution is despair and victim, like becoming a victim. It means that that's part of the human experience and holding both of those things at once. I distinctly remember when Simone Biles made the decision to pull out of the Olympics. It's like a watershed moment for mental health. And on the one hand, I thought it was great. And I think Simone Biles absolutely made the right decision because she is the world's best. No one knows it better than her. The last thing she needs is a white dude like me telling her to make the wrong decision, right? And she is in a situation where if she has the twisties and she goes for something, she can seriously injure herself, potentially end her life and her ability to move. So that was the right choice. What I took issue with were all of these articles in the pop culture about like, it's okay to quit in the power of quitting. And then I have my friends who, who coach high school cross country saying that he's got these kids that don't want to run the 800 because they're scared they're going to lose. And they cite Simone Biles and they say, well, she quit. And that was really strong of her. And I think like that's where we kind of lost the plot, where it does take a lot of strength to step out and to know your limits. But it also takes a lot of strength to do the hard thing, even when you're scared. And I think that sometimes like we take a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And I think like that's where the pendulum has maybe swung a little bit too far in the direction of um, quote unquote self-care. Because like for a kid, sometimes the self-care thing to do if you're playing the long game is actually to go do the hard thing. Right, not to avoid. Yeah, I mean, I think- um... Yes, avoidance, that's it. And, 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 and let me, like, because that word's so powerful. Every single evidence-based therapy for dealing with depression or anxiety teaches you not to avoid things. Like non-avoidance is the key skill. What it doesn't do is it doesn't say toughen up, Jimmy, and like go face the flames. It says, man, is it hard to be a human? Man, is it hard to carry with you fear and angst? And you need to know how to love yourself and to be your own best friend so that you can then go face those fears and do the hard thing and know you have your own back. And I think that is how to start communicating it to younger people. Sorry, Juliet, when you said avoidance, I just wanted to make sure. No, I mean, I I couldn't. Yeah, I mean, man, we could have a whole entire podcast on this subject because it's so important and and relevant on so many levels. And just the one comment I was going to make as I've talked to Lisa, our podcast producer, about this a little bit. And I think, you know, the, the word that she put into my mind is a lot of this pendulum swinging in the other way has been very disempowering for kids. And that's another word that, I don't know, when she said that to me, it it sort of resonated with me. Talk to me a little bit about the role of expectations. The brain is a prediction machine. What we experience as consciousness is always filtered through what we expect will happen next. And this is for good reason, right? Like if we never had any prediction about anything, we would be so inefficient because like we constantly have to vet everything. However, when our reality is different from our expectations, it throws us for a loop. And by definition, change is our expectations not being met or going awry. The shorthand equation that a lot of researchers like to use is happiness or calm at any given time is a function of your reality minus your expectations. When change happens, it is so important to update our expectations for the new reality to put those two things back in alignment or at least closer to alignment. Because if they're not, 
were thrown for a loop. A really powerful example of this was during COVID. In um, early on in COVID, there was a summer where cases essentially went down to zero everywhere. And it was great. Like we were going inside people's houses, training inside the gym, like COVID was over. And this was for more than a few weeks. It started to look like a few months. You know, all those articles were finally back to normal. And then the Delta variant came and it was such a gut punch. And I distinctly remember so many people were more despairing and felt worse when the Delta variant happened than at the beginning of the pandemic. Even though objectively, we were in much better shape. We had vaccines, we had therapeutics, we had information on how this transmitted, how to prevent it from transmitting. And yet everyone was acting like we're worse off, even though objectively we were better off. Why? Because the expectation, we'd gone through this terrible thing, and then we had the expectation that it's over, and then it wasn't. So it's like running a marathon and you know thinking you're at mile 25 and a half, and then someone plops you and puts you at mile two. It sucks. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should be like, this is great. But if we keep running as if we're at mile 25, we're just going to make ourselves miserable and we're not going to make any progress. I just am going to tell you a really pedestrian example of something similar to this. And by the way, I remember that part of COVID and I fell into that camp. I was really bummed about, I was like, it's over. This is a very pedestrian example, but I was doing a workout with my friend Margaret and I thought it was 10 rounds of something which already took 20 minutes in and of itself and was like a suffer fest. And on round 10, I'm jogging back to my house and Mag says to me, okay, we're just about to start round two because I hadn't seen on the board that was two times 10 rounds. And I was like devastated. And, but I mean, it's just such a simple example, but exactly what you're talking about, right? Just that the whole thing changed. Bro, I tried to prepare for that all the time. <laughs> Read the board. Read the board. And my expectations would have no, been. No, I, I always um, like program these open pieces. Well, you know, one quick other other story. Open pieces are good. They make for resilient athletes because then you can't just latch on to that expectation. Oh, my God. Could, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. You, Underline you, that. You Lisa, may, could you I'm just timestamp that moment? You may Lisa's have just ruined our head. marriage, Brad. Lisa's shaking her Kelly head. loves to program these workouts. He's like, just keep going until you feel tired. And I'm like, dude, I need a time constraint. <laughs> Come on now. So, you know, we just went through this, you know, I will say just on the expectations front, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier with the Michigan thing, we just dropped our oldest daughter off at college. So we're going through a huge change in our own life of going from a, well, we actually were five because our daughter's boyfriend basically lived at our house. So we went from five to three and, you know. Last night I made three cups of rice. Yeah. And I was like. I only need to make one cup of rice. Yeah. So we're going through this huge period of change, but, you know, I, I think that we actually, or at least I did not set my expectations correctly about the sadness part. You know, when you get in this, the whole college thing, you're like, college, college, college. Oh, okay. You got into college and you're going, you move in, you know, just, you're just on this sort of action. You're sort of like on this action wheel and it's all feels very exciting and you are excited. But I, I will say that I was surprised and not expecting how sad I would feel about the whole thing. So yeah. No, you're I sad have right no now. point. I have no point. I'm sad right now telling you this. And I think that that's okay. <laughs> Tragic optimism is the term that I talk about in the book. Viktor Frankl coined it. And um, he basically says like life is full of tragedy. And one of his three varieties of tragedy is the people that we love will lose. And you could talk about that in the ultimate sense, which is death, but it's a pretty significant loss to have your baby go off to school. I mean, I'm going to cry just thinking about what's going to happen. And my kids are five and nine months. So that is good reason to cry and to be sad. 
in the work, because it is work, is to like be optimistic nonetheless and to just embrace that and not judge yourself. And that's just like part of being a fully textured human being. And that's where you lean on social support. That's where you start crying on your podcast. Like all that is part of the deal. It is what it is. And it's really hard. I just want to go on record saying I too felt feelings. <laughs> you, you, you felt a feeling my feeling flex you felt itself. one feeling it, it flexed itself my you know what'd you feel oh. kelly free <laughs> no like i literally like i called georgia the she's the crown princess but uh normally i'm able to like one of my superpowers which didn't always serve me was be able to dissociate very well from and and then you know take action in a dissociate and didn't then, always serve you <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're running class five, it's a really great thing to dissociate and then and come back up. However, you know, it was tough when you were laying in bed, crying, first night in the dorms, and you're like, my my baby's gone. And I was like... Kelly's like, I feel no feelings. I, I feel this This is very sad. <laughs> no, I, fe I felt very sad too. But, you know, what I do appreciate is that it's, to your point, that this change is inevitable. And we had talked about it. We had prepared for it. We could see it coming, unlike so much disease and trauma that happens to families and disasters and fires and everything. We could prepare for this, and it still gave us a wallop. And I think that's what's really remarkable. Well, I think one thing that really resonates with me is that Julian and I, you know, in our last piece that we wrote, we're really trying to talk about the fact that we want you to be durable physically because the hits are coming. I think it's so naive to think you will not suffer change or grief or loss or any of those things. Just your job may change. You may move to a different place, just as you say. Like you could have engaged actively in your own choice because this is a better life. And that change is really, really difficult to manage. I just cannot sort of underline enough how nice it is for people to just even have some language and some framework to be able to understand that. And then, you know, in our own say, just even though that we had prepared for our daughter to go, still feeling like, wow, I didn't realize how sad I would be about this. I mean, this morning when her room was empty, <laughs> I was in the, in, no, I'm just kidding. I really do. It, it was gnarly. But um, even understanding all of that, I think it's difficult, but you have to experience it and do it. And now, sort of even just having prepared this, because you sent me another copy, having a schema and, and a language and a template to model it meant it was easier for me to anticipate what was next and a and right action. And I think that's something you talk about, is taking action in the face of challenge. Is that is that right? That is right. And it's the best thing that we can do is in those moments is to take a skillful, wise, or right action. The brain really struggles to be distraught about the same about something at the same time it's acting on that thing. So one of the best ways to take our brain out of being distraught is to act. But that doesn't mean to react because there's a lot of unskillful actions you can take. It's about taking a skillful action. And does that mean reaching out for social support? Does that mean getting a workout in? Does that mean volunteering? It can mean a whole bunch of different things, but I think that when it feels like you want to be paralyzed out of action, that's generally a good cue to force yourself into action. One of the things that, that resonated with me about that concept, Michael Gervais is a hero of mine. He had a, a sports performance psychologist on him, George Mumford. Oh, George is great. Yeah. George is great. And just is just a really incredible sense of person. And when he was asked, how do you define excellence? He said, it's the pause between action and reaction. And that space in there, 
And he's like, that happens in a microsecond of the, the mini traumas, the, the things that happen to you from sport, secondarily got pushed, whatever, but also in the big gaps of weeks, days, months between something happened to you and your ability to sort of not just react. I saw that there was a common thread there and I just wanted to sort of underline that for, for everyone because I think that that, what you just pointed out is really important, not just this near-jerk reaction. I love it. And, and you're 100% right. I talk about trivial changes versus big changes. So uh, your dog has diarrhea or you get stuck in traffic or the Zoom breaks down. Well, that's a change. It doesn't meet your expectations and you have a choice. You can either panic and react or you can have some space and respond really thoughtfully and take right action. And those happen in the moments. And those are talked about a lot. That's talked about in sports all the time, right? Like you said, like, are you going to respond and react? But there's not as much coaching for these like stretched out liminal spaces in our lives where like you're not responding or reacting to your, your oldest daughter going off to school in a moment. You're doing that for the next couple of months, perhaps for the next couple of years. And there's this beautiful, beautiful allegory Freud wrote about this, and presumably he's on a hike with the poet Maria Rayner Rilke. He doesn't name him. He just says like a despondent poet that's a friend. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, it must be Rilke. And they're going on this hike, and there's all these beautiful wildflowers. And Freud is feeling all of this like joy at the wildflowers. And Rilke is just despairing. And Freud says like, dude, why are you so upset? And Rilke says, because these wildflowers are going to like wilt. They're going to die. And he couldn't allow himself to be happy because he was so scared of being sad when the flowers went away. And obviously, he's not just talking about the flowers. He's talking about everything. And what Freud said, and Freud was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about this. That's all the more reason to love deeply and to pay attention because it's transient. And philosophers have done all kinds of crazy thought experiments where if things didn't change, we'd be miserable. We'd be bored out of our minds. So the idea of everything staying the same always is like a purgatory. It's solitary confinement, yet change is also really painful. And both of those things can be true at, at the same time. So I think in, in, in these situations, it's just normalizing. Like, it's okay to feel sad. It doesn't mean anything's wrong. Like, that means something's right. And there are tools that we can do. We don't have to sit in the despair. We can take right action. We can get social support. And for those of us, Juliet, that do have feelings, we can like read stories of other people <laughs> that have gone through similar things. And I think that's one of the beauties of books is that like you can read across time and you can feel seen and heard by other people. And, and that can help a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say like this book was so timely, like it literally arrived and I was like, wow, we are about to like we we got this, you know, early copy of this book, like on the precipice of this big life change. And I was like, wow, how important. And I mean, I really like on a personal level cannot recommend it enough master of change. Tell us what's next for you besides going around and talking about your book and where can people learn more about you, follow you buy the book, all of sort of the the logistics. All right, we'll start with the book. The book is available everywhere you get books. You can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookseller. It's available in all formats. You can read it. You can listen to it. You can't yet zap it into your brain, but maybe one day. <laughs> oh. Someday that'll Everyone, happen. I need this on. Like, yeah. It's it's my now my screensaver, just so you know. On the internet, on the web, I'm most active on Instagram these days. I'm just struggling to get motivated to show up on X, but um, I'm at Brad Stolberg. And then I co-host a podcast, my collaborator, Steve Magnus. It's called The Growth Equation. What's next? I've got another book in the works, 
but I promised myself that I was going to wait until the start of next year, 2024, to start working on it in earnest. In the past, I've moved on from a book to the next one really fast, which I think is great for my mental health and I love writing, but I feel like I've shortchanged the promotion of those books. So with this one, I'm going to try to push myself to um, spend a little bit more time shepherding it out into the world before I, I lose myself in the next one. I can't wait to hear the stories that come up as you talk about this, because it really, what's so amazing about this is that Juliet saw her own self in a unique way. I saw my own self in a unique way. And I think anyone who reads this is immediately going to be like, oh, you, you wrote this for me. <laughs> like, exactly for me. Thanks. Well, and yeah, and I, I just want to just add to the love. I mean, it was one of the things I love so much about it is just how personal it was. I mean, I felt like I read this and I was like, oh my God, I know Brad. Like I know him and he, you were so open with sharing your own experience and challenges and it was really spectacular in that way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And it's been so interesting to hear from people that I felt like this was the most personal book and I was worried that like people weren't going to relate to it. And then everyone's like, this is the most universal book. Like, did you write this for me? I think that's actually really beautiful because to me, what that tells us is that like, yes, it feels so individual, but we all go through these changes. We all age. We all get sick at some point. If we're lucky, we recover. Many people get married. Many people get divorced. We all have family drama. We all relocate and move geographically. Those of us that are career focused, we all have big wins and big losses. So it's not to take away from the intensity of those feelings when they happen to you. But I think there's something really consoling also about knowing that these are universal things. And it allows us to show up and have conversations like this and like feel like, all right, we got this together. And I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. And theoretically become better people on the other side. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Go figure, well, right? A little more, a little more uh, able to handle my own, my own craziness. Yeah. And congratulations again. And I, you know, I think it's a great idea that you're going to sort of do the promotion tour a little Enjoy longer because I do think this is an important book for a lot of people to read. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure uh, getting to spend some time with you today. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it.